from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. I'm your host, Christian, and welcome to the show this morning. Just to preface this for my listeners, today I am going to be talking with a professor about topics in American history that were graphic and tragic, so if that is going to upset you, you have been warned. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Johnson. Professor Johnson taught American social and intellectual history at Portland State University for many years and has conducted research on many topics. In one of his most compelling projects, Professor Johnson is currently working on a website which documents the maps and maps lynching in the Pacific West. He is also currently working on a book which covers the lynching of a Hispanic woman during the gold rush in California. Today we'll be discussing these projects, as well as the recent downward trend in history majors across the United States. With that being said, I would like to welcome Dr. Johnson to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be here, Professor. Well, thank you for the invitation. So let's start off with how did you become interested in history and, to be more specific, American social history? Well, the simple simple answer is that uh, I arrived in college in the late 1960s, and the world, it seemed to me as a kid, was um, on fire with respect to the war in Vietnam, which was immediately relevant to someone my age who was not uh, ready to go to war. And also in terms of the civil rights movement, I had grown up in a very uh, segregated suburb in Southern California and was um, just ignorant of the civil rights movement. I actually was a suburb of L.A., so I was aware of the urban crises in Los Angeles and the Watts riots and so on. And in college, I was kind of thrown out of that, my childhood environment, and faced with questions about life and death, about war and peace, about race and equality, and it resonated deeply. And the way in which I discovered myself making sense of my own life, my own world, was through the history classes I took and through the, through the teaching of some extraordinary instructors that, at the University of California, Irvine, that I encountered. In, and not just in history, but also in anthropology and sociology and in uh, black studies and in Latino studies, Asian studies, that became an inspiration not just for explaining my own life and orienting myself in my own life, but for thinking about a career and a calling for myself, which proved out many years later, 50 years later. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the projects that you are currently working on is a digital history project that involves mapping the instances of lynching in the Pacific West. And I was wondering, how did you get involved with this digital project? There's that's a that's actually there's a long story there. Um, it stems from a, a number of things. One is the this book that you mentioned briefly that I'm that I've been working on for a generation, which has to do with a legendary lynching of a Mexican woman during the Gold Rush. As a matter of fact, uh, your listeners should check the front page of the Los Angeles Times from yesterday. There ran a story, yet another story, about this, uh, about the lynching of the woman known variously as Josefa and Juanita. I came upon that after, oh boy, this will take a while, Christian, <laughs> feel free to interrupt me. But um, totally my, my first job teaching was at San Diego State after I finished graduate school in Philadelphia. And I was assigned to teach California history. And uh, as is the case with many young instructors, if you're teaching a survey, and I was assigned a textbook. And I was basically a week ahead of my students trying to, uh, trying to explain the material in the textbook in a way that was uh, understandable. And I got to the section on lynching in the Gold Rush, which I was not really aware of. The fact that there was um, enormous numbers of lynching incidents in the late from 1849 to the end of the 1850s, in, especially in the Gold Rush areas. So I wasn't aware, it was very intriguing, but I also found that the author's explanation of it, kind of their general interpretive explanation, was, um, was just simply 
something that I couldn't abide by. I couldn't teach it to my students. I don't even remember exactly what it was. But I became obsessed with the issue about cold rush lynchings. In the space of about two weeks, I poured through uh, some sources, and there's, there were and are some readily available sources that just chronicle uh, violence in the gold rush. And that became the basis of a one of my first academic articles, which after a lot more research, um, I published in my first year at Portland State University. It was on lynching in California. And what I tried to do there was to understand how do people justify this kind of popular violence in again and again and again, rather constantly. And so I, I did that. And then it just kind of sat there. And then in the process of doing that, I came upon this case in uh, Downeyville in 1851 that I just thought was fascinating. And I just, out of curiosity, started to collect examples and sources and so on, which I just have done for like 25, 30 years now. And then it came to the point where I was decided to write this book about the telling of the tale of the woman who was hanged. And one chapter in it I wanted to be on and will be on, is on, uh, the climate of violence in 1851 in California, just the widespread violence, not only but especially against Mexicans and kind of the continuation of the war with Mexico, who had, which had ended a few years earlier. And it seemed to be one of, the, one of the avenues through which the war against Mexico was continued was through lynching, through the lynchings, uh, lynching of Mexicans and Mexican Californians. And as a matter of fact, there's, not, there's nothing new about that. People at the time who were prosecuting lynchings against Mexicans and expulsions from, the, from mining towns against Mexicans said as much, that uh, it is time to expel and annihilate the remaining presence of Mexicans in California. So I wanted to do a chapter on this. And as part of this chapter, I wanted to include a map of the locations of the lynchings and other, other kind of violent reactions and actions against Mexicans in California in 1851, which led me to look into, well, how would I produce a map? And I discovered that, well, mapping technology and software has uh, kind of blossomed, and it's, it's well, it, is, it actually turned out to be hard, but my thought at the time is, wow, we can actually produce, produce maps that are very detailed and have many layers. So I thought, and I had all this, I had this information from this article I'd written 40 years earlier about lynching in California. And I thought, well, let's see if I can produce a map. So I actually, with the help of a student in geography, I created a, a map of lynchings in California because I wanted to show them in the, in the period of time surrounding this particular lynching I was writing about. And from that, I thought, well, I have this map of lynchings. It's fairly rudimentary, but what about a website that actually explores lynchings more broadly, not just in California, but the West, which is an understudied topic. And in addition to the newly available mapping uh, technology, so to speak, was the my realization that another revolution had taken place for research in terms of the digiti digi digitizing of newspapers, of um, in you know just an incredible range of newspapers are now available for uh, research through full text search, and so I started to work and play around with that and discover that wow you can actually discover very easily things that were literally impossible to discover five years ago. Do a text search um, on a newspaper database, and there are many of them, of lynching. And you'll find hundreds, or indeed thousands, of hits. And so I thought, this is so interesting. And then you can also download scans of those newspaper articles. So I thought was, well, it would be given that, and this was, we're talking four or five years ago, we're talking uh, my thinking is that we're living in a time of um, kind of renewed violence and uh, acceptance of violence in the United States. And the history of it is germane to public discourse and to education at every level, from uh, K-12 to undergraduate education to graduate education. It's also these sources and this information is... Uh, can be groundwork for scholars and for graduate students who have interest in one or more lynching incident or in various areas and so on. So that was really the place where it began.
with that, and it's and it's uh, been building since then. And would you mind quickly defining the term lynching to any mm-hmm. of our viewers who might not be familiar with it? That is a very good, interesting question for which I do not have a good answer. But I'll say this: what in the in this uh, in the website that I'm developing. I follow my sources for the most part, which is to say that if a newspaper from 1863 describes an event as a lynching, I include it. Now that is contrary to that is contrary to some of the most important projects that study lynching that have that use prima facie definitions. And the most important of these is that of the um, Tuskegee Institute, the NAACP. Uh, project that began in the early 20th century as part of the anti-lynching movement in the South. And it was the, the uh, documenting documentation of lynching that began under the auspices of the NAACP was focused on political results, that's to say, anti-lynching legislation. And to that end, the NAACP de- defined lynchings, I believe, as an event that included more than four people as the perpetrators of the lynching and ended with the murder or the killing, the execution of a purported suspect, let's say the person lynched. And I think for the purposes, uh, for many purposes, that's, that is um, an especially compelling definition of lynching. Uh, and I think it's particularly germane to the lynching of African Americans in the South between the 18. 80s, essentially, and uh, the end of World War II, which are roughly the, it's roughly the time period of the height of lynching uh, in the American South, where many thousands, uh, the current count is 4,500 or so, but it's, but it's more likely as research continues, will you know, six, seven, who knows how many actual victims of the Southern lynching era will be identified. Now, one of the things, that said, one of the things I noticed in, in looking through now thousands of newspaper reports of lynchings in the Pacific West, and by the Pacific West I mean generally from the Rockies to the Pacific, and that's an area where the study of lynching has certainly occurred, and there's some notable projects and some uh, outstanding books on it. But, it's, but relative to the South, it's, uh, it is um, understudied. And one of the things that I did, I've... Um, that has struck me in reading through now thousands of newspaper reports is that lynchings, according to contemporary observers, did not fit into a precise and specific definition. There were many, many incidents reported as lynchings that, for example, did not result in the death of um, the person prosecuted by a mob. But even so, they were often, if not always, terrorizing. And I'm thinking of the scores of incidents where people were whipped, um, sometimes within an inch of their life, sometimes 100, 150, or 200 lashes, and left essentially for dead. Or instances where suspects were branded. It wasn't uncommon for a, uh, or for a um, purported horse thief to have an H and T branded in their cheeks. Others had their ears cropped and the like. But these were not... These were not fatal. They were not lethal. So I, I include those. Uh, it was not uncommon for lynch mobs to actually seize a, seize a person and hang them, hang them to the point of death, maybe two or three times, to force them to confess to uh, a real or supposed crime of one sort. So for my definition, long, <laughs> then my long defi- def- the, the long, the end of my long and unsatisfactory de- description is that I'm following the sources on this. And I'm casting the net wide, uh, widely as opposed to narrowly. And one of the things I hope that the website will do is to encourage a discussion of what falls into the domain of lynching or vigilance or mob justice, so-called mob justice and the like, to actually encourage a public discussion of it. I think it's interesting that you mention, when someone mentions the word lynching, uh, I feel most people, at least even for me, would think of the South. And as you said, there are significant studies in the Pacific West regarding this topic. But why do you think that 
most people don't think of the Pacific West as a place where this has occurred. And what kind of reasons or trends did you find in your research? For example, what role did race play? Did it play the same role as it did in the South? And what were the different, and this is a really complex question, but what were the differences between lynching in the Pacific West during the gold rush and lynching in the South? There's about three questions there. Yeah. Uh, um, why is there less attention to the Pacific West? Well, the answer I think is pretty straightforward, and that's because lynching was much, much less prevalent. We're talking, uh, now mind you, my, my chronicling of lynchings in the Pacific West is uh, at, the be- at, say, the one-third point. And my estimate at this time is that in the end, for the 11 or so states from the Rockies to the Pacific, we will, we will end up with about 1,000 instances, um, which pales in comparison to the scale of lynching in the South. Um, another big difference is that lynching in the South, while not exclusively targeted African Americans, largely, overwhelmingly did. And it was part of a particular reign of terror to reimpose or to impose racial uh, domination in the South. While that's partly, and in an important way, part of the, I think, the history of lynching in the Pacific West, it's, it's, um, there are other aspects to it. It's, it's, more, it's more variegated in the, in the Pacific West. In terms of race, the two most significant targets of lynching were Mexican-Americans, especially in California, especially in the 1850s, as I alluded to earlier, um, where I think lynching and other forms of mob violence were very much a continuation of the war against Mexico. And then a second just overwhelming target were Native Americans. And I've just begun to scratch the surface in terms of that violence. And fortunately, there's a wonderful book, or if not so, if not wonderful, a compelling book published uh, within the last three years called An American Genocide uh, by Professor Ben Matt, Benjamin Madley at UCLA that very closely documents genocidal violence against Native Americans in California from 1840 to 1880s. And that's not to say that African Americans weren't weren't uh, the victims of lynching, and that Asian Americans weren't, because there certainly were scores of incidents where that is exactly the case. Some of them pretty horrendous. Uh, one of the most horrendous ones being in Hell's Canyon, uh, in eastern on the border of, of eastern Oregon and Idaho, where a band of white men annihilated a uh, Chinese mining mining camp. So there was certainly a racial component, but by the same token, there were scores and scores of white men who were the um, objects of lynching violence throughout the period. And it goes to one of the curious things, I think, about especially gold rush lynching. Gold rush lynching was in its time not always, but oftentimes described as virtuous, as a pure form of justice, as a means of punishing miscreants directly from the people without the interference of courts, judges, lawyers, and other distorting factors. Which is, this is to say that, that lynching and its immediacy in the public press in the 18, late 1840s and 1850s was at best mixed. And in some, and in many instances, there was a kind of a pro-lynching tenor to the public discourse of, of the time. Now this, and this was not on the grounds 
simply of purifying, racially purifying California. It was also just on the, on the grounds of this is much more like the Declaration of Independence than the elaborate systems of courts and juries and so on. And this positive, uh, this is just a hunch of mine. It's something I want to explore more deeply. This positive discourse about lynching in the gold rush comes in the 1850s. The explosion of racial anti-black lynching in the South begins to flourish. It's not, it doesn't begin, but it begins to really flourish and explode from the 1880s forward, from the 1880s to World War I. And it does so in the context of this national discourse, this national kind of argument about the virtues of lynching exhibited in the California Gold Rush. Now, I'm not sure I can make a connection, but it, it's prompted in my mind whenever I read about uh, the virtues of gold rush lynching in uh, hundreds of hundreds of uh, newspaper reports, not just in, not just in the West but throughout the nation in the 1850s. That at some level, American culture was primed to, if not accept, to f be ambivalent about the virtue uh, or the the um, terror of lynchings against African Americans in the South. My next question is, you talk about this idea of gold rush lynching as being virtuous. And Be, being described as virtuous. Being I'm described not saying, I'm not saying right. it was virtuous. It was terror. My apologies. Yes. It was described as being virtuous. And so what effect did the gold rush have on the occurrences of lynching in the Pacific West? Did you see a dramatic increase? In the amount of lynchings, did it change the demographic? I think it's hard to say it changed the demographic. The demographic of the gold rush, that's say from 1849 to say 1856 in California, was that it was overwhelmingly male. In contradictory ways, it consisted f on the order of upwards of 80% of the population, many 80-90% of the population, many places consisting solely of, or consisting of men, and usually men between the ages of 18 and 35. So you have these places overwhelmingly populated by young men. And by the same token, it was also cosmopolitan in the sense of it was composed of these young men from all over the world. So I'm not sure lynching changed that up, but there is certainly reason to ask whether that particular demographic characteristic contributed to the kind of violence that lynching, uh, kind of to lynching during the gold rush. And in terms of the Pacific West, I'm, just to give you some notion of, some vague, uh, kind of a general notion of numbers. California, so at this point where I've documented, not completely, but pretty close, I think, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Nevada, to the tune of about 700 incidents about 550 of those took place in California. So it's, it is, and in, in, in about, uh, I'd say three or 400, probably 400, 450 took place during the gold rush. So it is overwhelmingly kind of the locus of 19th century lynching in the Pacific West. Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, I've been able to find, now mind you, this is still incomplete, especially with respect to um, crowd violence against Native Americans. I think that's the one area where everyone needs to do so much more work in terms of the documentation. But uh, each of those accounts for about 30, 30 to 40 instances that I can, that I can currently document. So it's an order of magnitude. The incidence of lynchings during the gold rush is an order of magnitude greater than elsewhere throughout. Um, were there any laws regarding lynching in California? And if there were, it maybe they were hard to enforce, but it also seems like maybe they weren't enforced. The answer is yes to the latter. And there were always laws against lynching because lynching was um, illegal on any level. It is an abrogation of uh, the constitutional authority of sheriffs, of courts, of uh, juries, of judges, and the like. And it's important to remember that California becomes a state as of October 1850, and lynching really begins to explode after that point in time. And 
when it becomes a state, the state constitution creates counties, it creates court systems, it creates a system of, of criminal justice. There are, there are indeed courts, sheriffs, judges, jails throughout the state and throughout the gold rush era, uh, area. As of late 1850, even before, kind of informally, 1850 and 1851. And as a matter of fact, one of the things about vigilante, one of the arguments justifying vigilante justice is that it took place in the absence of a uh, authoritative and genuine criminal justice system. And I think that's a strained argument, frankly, because even if there weren't immediately available law enforcement and judicial systems in these remote mines, they were never very far away. And there are also scores, or let's say dozens, I don't want to put a number on, dozens and do- dozens of instances where lynch mobs seized, their sus- seized a person from the jail and hanged them on the courthouse steps. And this was also, as a matter of fact, there are no, there are no small number of examples of this happening in Oregon. And Washington and Idaho. I was just looking at a couple of a couple of instances yesterday, where and this actually took place, I believe, in. Uh, oh, I want to be careful. Colfax, Washington, where a um, where two men were in jail, and the um, and this is just a process that happens again and again, where a mob decides that they that the uh, the justice system was not efficient, or it might indeed lead to their release. And the mob stormed the jail. They, they um, tied up the jailer, and they took two men out, out of their cells and hanged one. I can't remember. One, I think they hanged outside the courthouse. The other, they threw him uh, with a rope around his neck off of the landing on the second floor of the courthouse. So the point is that lynching is everywhere illegal in a formal way. And I find it, I find the argument that it's one of, it, it's, Justifying it on the grounds that, that um, the absence of genuine law or criminal justice, I find that to be strained, both today and at the time, or at least unexamined in a way that said, well, wouldn't it have been possible to restrain a person and then deliver them, even if it took you a day to go there? Another thing I would just I would add quickly is that in, in gold or mining rushes in other parts of North America and in Australia, in Canada and in, in Australia, there wasn't anywhere near the level of violence. Now, they were smaller in every regard, but there was proportionally nothing near the level of violence that occurred in mining areas in uh, the United States. And probably the, the most uh, obvious reason for that is that the um, provincial authorities sent in, or the, the uh, British authorities sent in police to oversee behavior in these places. So the United States was odd in that sense that people were left to their own devices. And this is just a question out of curiosity, but I assume that the mobs that did storm the jails and the courthouse, were they were they ever the subject of any legal troubles? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Yes, they were sometimes. And there were some notable instances where, uh, as a matter of fact, this this begins to happen at, with some frequency as the 19, at the, towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, where individuals, where individual men were arrested and prosecuted for lynchings, for basically for murder. And as far, I may be wrong about this, but as far as I remember, no one was ever successfully prosecuted. Those who were tried for murder as part of lynching mobs were, I believe, in every instance acquitted. There might be a few cases where they were convicted. I think there's a case in California where lynchers were convicted, but then their um, their terms were commuted or they were granted clemency. So in my memory, you have to ask me and ask me to go back and look at this, but my memory tells me that there was no successful prosecution of lynchers. The other thing that I would just add in this regard is that lynching in the 1850s, one of the reasons why its exponents argued for its kind of virtuous nature was that it was usually carried out openly. There was no attempt to conceal, for the participants to conceal themselves. That's to say they proudly lynched. 
as the century goes on, not completely, but generally speaking, as the 19th century goes on, the 20th century dawns, lynchers concealed themselves. It was done in secrecy. So these cases where people were actually prosecuted for lynching uh, were cases in which they had to be hunted down by the authorities. They, it's not that they openly declared their participation. So one of the major claims they made is that I wasn't there because lynching becomes very much a kind of hidden activity as opposed to a public activity. So I want to move to the book that you've been working on. You write about a legendary lynching of a Hispanic woman. And I was wondering, could you describe how and why this lynching occurred and why it is legendary? Well, it's, uh, I'm sure all your listeners are aware of this, at least if they've taken History 300 with me. It's the, it's known most generally and incorrectly as the lynching of Juanita. And it's legendary for, above all, the reason that this is the, she, her execution was, is the only instance of a woman hanged or executed by a lynch mob in the gold rush. As a matter of fact, one of a handful of instances where a woman was the object of a lynch mob's wrath. So that's part of the notoriety. In addition, it's considered legendary. And by legendary, I mean that um, there are, I've, I've tried to collect every, every um, small or large version of this story that I can, and I've been doing so for years and years. And I, I currently have a, uh, upwards of five, 500, actually I think I have exactly 500 stories about this from 1851 when it occurred to the present, to literally two days ago. So secondary, secondarily in terms of its legendary status is that it took place on July the 5th, 1851. And July the 5th, 1851, as you, everyone knows, is, is uh, one day after July the 4th. And as it happened in the town where it occurred, which is Downeyville, California, at the time a very um, successful mining camp high up in the Sierra Nevadas above uh, Sacramento and Marysville, there were... Oh, it's hard to make a firm estimate, but maybe four or five, six thousand miners living and working on the um, working in the drifts of the Yuba River. So it took place one day after July the fourth. Well, on that July the fourth, there had been a uh, significant patriotic event and a Democratic Party county convention, which were important events in terms of uh, were really starting the. Uh, American era of politics in California. And there are hundreds of men there for the political aspect of the 4th of July celebration, uh, candidates for office and aspiring party hacks and the like. The speaker of the day on July the 4th was a man named John Weller, who was angling to become governor of the state. And a young, a young Stephen Fields was there. And Steve, Stephen Fields eventually goes on to be uh, a justice of the Supreme Court appointed by Lincoln, and he was um, a very long-standing justice of the United States Supreme Court, Supreme Court uh, notoriously in many, in many regards. And there were many others. There were dozens of others, uh, who, men who eventually will become famous in California or American history. So there's the whole business of the, uh, of the politics of the day. And then I think the other and most important reason why it was, one can say it's legendary, is that it, the actual facts or the actual event itself defy deeply embedded stereotypes about, about men, about women, and about homicide, and about justice. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, what happens in rough form is that uh, after uh, late in the evening of July the 4th, after the celebrations are over, a band of drunken men parade through the street and they try to rouse people up to join their revel. And uh, reportedly they knock on the door of a house where, a, where uh, a Mexican woman is living with her paramour or her husband and the door breaks in. And according to the most prominent version, the door breaks in and one of the miners falls in, his drunken miner falls in. His friends gather him up, pull him out, 
They apologize and they go away. And then the next morning, the morning early in the morning of July the 5th, the drunken miner, his name is Cannon, goes to the home of the uh, Mexican couple to apologize. But the apology, the discussion goes south. He argues with the woman's uh, husband, uh, Paramore Jose. She comes out, angrily confronts him. He calls her a whore. And she responds by saying, if you're going to call me names, come into my home and do it. He stand, as he approaches the door, she pulls out a knife and stabs him through the heart. He dies on the spot. Then, briefly, the woman, Juanita, or actually Josefa, are taken by a crowd. They hold them, and then they form a court, and they try them, and they convict her of murder and order her execution. They, they, they uh, acquit Jose, but banish him from uh, the town, saying he has to leave within 24 hours. And then at the end of the day, she's executed. And notably, two things about the trial and her execution that also contribute to the legend. One is that she never proclaims that she acted in self-defense. She's defiant and straightforward, stating, reportedly, that the man, Cannon, had insulted her and insulted her family, meaning her husband, Jose, and that she killed him for doing so, and she would do so again under the same circumstances. Secondly, during the trial, a doctor in town by the name of Cyrus Aiken asked to testify, and he testifies that the woman is pregnant and that the lynch mob, the lynch crowd, the lynch trial cannot execute her because to do so would be executing a innocent child. He's shouted down. He's forced out of town, warned not to come back. At the end of the day, she's escorted to a bridge over the, over the Yuba River and in a dramatic series of events where she once again proclaims that she would do the same under, the, under um, the same circumstances. She would kill again under the same She's lynched and executed. So what happens in this case is, is are a number of things that are counter to stereotypes about women and men. One is that women, in terms of, in terms of committing homicide, women are much less apt, you could say historically, generally, statistically, women are much less apt to commit homicides. It's about, I think, 12% of homicides historically are committed by women. Secondly, women who do commit homicides more often than not commit homicides that are truly in self-defense. That's to say fending off rape, abuse, and violence by spouses or partners or anonymous strangers. Female homicide is also historically connected to instances, for example, servant women who are impregnated, raped by their master, who abort or kill their children because uh, out of shame, out of punishment. Or there are instances of women in poverty, who is kind of the Sophie's Choice example, where they... Um, Either, let's say they have a, a woman who has two or three children and all three can perish by starvation or one can be saved. And so homicide happens. There are instances of, of that kind of homicide. Men, on the other hand, not all the times, but much, much more often, commit homicides, murders, out of questions of pride or money. And California Gold Rush is is very illustrative of this because of one of the things that was striking about the gold rush is the um, prevalence of dueling, which are you know, fights to the death over wounded pride. And as a matter of fact, dueling became so prevalent that the California legislature uh, during the gold rush actually outlawed it. There are oh statutes, statutes against <clears throat> dueling in uh, California law. Um, or men kill for money. 
either robbery, I mean, you know, armed robbery is, is largely a male phenomenon. So the, the thing that's curious about this particular homicide by, the, by this uh, Mexican woman in California is that it doesn't fit into the stereotype of how women kill. It does fit into the stereotype of how men kill. The second thing I'd say that's curious or counter-stereotypical about the event is that when women do kill, they are proportional to men, not executed for homicide. Um, the proportions are about the same. I think of, of uh, if I have this, this may be incorrect, but it's not. Generally speaking, only about, I think, 10% historically, 10% of women who have committed homicide have been executed for it, whereas it's much higher for men. And what happens to women historically who commit homicide is not that they are released, but that they are treated as morally def deficient by definition. That's to say, it's counter, it, that's to say the, the explanation historically has been that women who kill, it's impossible for women to kill. If they do kill, it's because they are deranged and they can't be executed because they are actually insane. Now, one scholar, Ann Jones, has written in a book called Women Who Kill that essentially what's happened historically to women is that they are denied the capacity to kill. And by definition, when they do kill, they're considered to be something other than human. And so they are, what happens to women is that they are, are uh, uh, historically, again, I'm not talking about the present, but historically locked up in asylums. And the key is thrown away forever. And they're denied the right to actually declare self-defense or declare that I killed for money. So this woman also defies kind of, the, or the, the instance defies the stereotype of uh, women being declared mad when they do kill and being executed or not being executed for it. She is summarily executed. It, what struck me at the very beginning is how this is kind of, this um, historical event is kind of contrary to stereotypical explanations on a variety of levels. And also the fact that it had been written about so many times, kind of constantly. And that there are other mysteries about it, like what was her name? Uh, and the fact that it really didn't matter until quite recently who the woman was. Uh, was she an actual historical figure? I think in most accounts up, in t up until maybe the last generation, she stood as a cipher for something else. And so in the book, in my book, I want to actually kind of unravel these mysteries and explain these aspects and also try to recover who the woman was. Well, I look forward to reading your answers. I would actually like to switch gears now, something that I have been talking about with a lot of professors on the show and something that I talk about quite often with Professor Ott, who is the chair of our department, is the issue regarding the decline of history majors across the United States. And I think it's an issue that's on the minds of a lot of historians. And I was just wondering, for your personal opinion, what do you think some of the main causes are? And another question is, what do you think the implication, what are the implications of this decline? Well, if I had an answer to that, I'd, uh, I'd tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple, I do have a couple of thoughts about it. And, and first of all, I would note that it's not just history in the university that's seen a decline in enrollment. It's, it's uh, as I understand it, generally across the humanities in particular, but I think also to some degree, the social sciences as well, uh, the kind of allied and cognate social sciences to history. So it's, it's a, uh, and in that sense, it's related to a shift in the zeitgeist about what preparation for a career should emphasize. I can say that when I was in college, there was very, at least in my experience, which is you know profound, but nonetheless statistically less than significant, there was little thought among my cohort about our one's professional path as a freshman or sophomore. And it really didn't hit me till I was a junior or senior. 
and I think, as I once said to a class way back when, I said, you know, when I was in college, people thought, oh, I can be a poet. That'll be fine. That'll work. And certainly the world has changed since I was a student. I think particularly in the beginning of the 1980s that made professionalism and career a foremost consideration for students and their parents and their families when talking about a college education. And I can't say in the 1980s in particular, there was a not dissimilar decline. I don't think it lasted quite as long as this one has, but not dissimilar decline in terms of, of enrolled students and majors in, in the humanities. That, uh, However, in that case, it coincided with an economic recession. But it did change. And one of the things that I remember distinctly from the 1990s is that when the zeitgeist kind of changed and there seemed to be, okay, there seemed to be opportunities for our students in history that didn't exist 10 years ago, people rushed to take advantage of them because there was, in my view, this inherent and strong appeal of a career that involved thinking and research and understanding the past. There's this inherent, you could say, understanding literature, understanding society, or understanding culture, a job, uh, a career that emphasized that, that is so powerful that it draws, if, if it should rear its head, or when it rears its head, its head again, we will see millions of people rushing to it. So we'll see about that. I think a second thing, so this is, I'm just, now I'm making stuff up, actually, <laughs> Christian, but uh, I do think beginning in the 1980s, one of the things, you know, there's often talk about how the middle class was hollowed out in the last 40 years, and I think that begins in the 1980s. And it begins, and it and has flourished since then. And I think it's been, in some sense, the outcome, if not conscious, effective, of creating enormous anxiety among people about their economic fate and their careers, and you know the loss of uh, one of the, the loss of pensions for post-retirement, the kind of decline of pensions in so much of the economy and the tax on social security that you will you you need to really amass wealth when you're young or you're going to be out of luck when and if you stop working or you'll have to work till the day you die the decline of of uh, that moment that post world war 2 moment when lifetime security was a focus of public policy and part of a kind of universal consensus over the relationship between the public and, and, uh, and power and the powers of, of government. The decline of that and the uh, cracking up of that notion into a kind of individualist world, a world of individuals striving against one another, inevitably creates an environment in which college becomes less about learning things that have no monetary value or no apparent monetary value and more about skills that will get you a job. The other thing that has, so I'm not sure that made much sense. The other thing that happens that comes to mind is the, um, is the decline of free college education. So, so this is something that troubles me deeply and it's now at the forefront of the, maybe at the forefront of the presidential campaign. So when I went to the University of California, it was essentially free and Is this UCI? UC Irvine, right, in the UC system, where there was, a, if I remember correctly, like a $50 per quarter fee, which is $150. So that is my, that's my benchmark, my personal benchmark. And departures from that have struck me as curious and illegitimate ever since it started happening. And it started happening from my perch when I arrived at Portland State in 1970, 1980, and through the 1980s, what I noticed is that, geez, college, college tuition is really skyrocketing in response to declining state, in the state of Oregon, declining state budgets. But even when things, even when the economy turned around, higher education in the state, the tuition kept going up. And so there was a shift in my experience that occurred between the 1960s and 19, early 1970s and the 1980s to the present where an earlier notion that college education was 
for those who chose it, and this is the reason why the vast expansion of public, of public higher education occurred, for those who chose it, a college degree was essentially at no cost. Two, one, that uh, tuition is a necessary investment in your future, uh, which creates an entire institutional apparatus of loans, of private loans, banking, and at the end of a college education, the equivalent of a home mortgage without the possession of a physical home. Personally, I think that's terrible, but I also think it has a real bearing on the decline of study of the humanities by creating more and more pressure on students and their families to say, you have to get out in a way that will prepare you uh, according to the conventional wisdom to pay back your loans. Yeah. Now you take away the loans and the circumstances, the environment changes dramatically. And I don't want to say there's a conspiracy about this, but you know, what the heck? Everybody loves conspiracies <laughs> in uh, this day and age. But you might consider that. Yeah. I'm, I'm joking. I'm actually <laughs> joking. But I think it is uncanny the way that um, the decline of the critical disciplines, that's to say those that are engaged in, in uh, not criticizing, but in critical analysis of society, thought, culture, diplomacy, economics. The decline of those majors, those, those uh, courses of study in the university, certainly serves interests. And that I think it does... In a very important way, it does. It is based upon the impoverishment of students and the lifetime debt that the current system creates for students. I think if you wipe away that system, you free students' minds, and you will see a dramatic shift in terms of the kinds of things young people, returning students, what they want to know. It'll definitely be interesting to see where it heads. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So I would first and foremost like to thank you for coming on the show and discussing your research, as well as the future trends of the study of history. It's personally one of my favorite parts of talking to professors. It is through conversations like these that I not only hope to raise interest in history, but also to raise awareness of the importance of its study. So thank you for coming on today, Professor. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find more information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show, and recently we have been entertaining the idea of a quiz show. So please let us know your thoughts by contacting the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.